Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be with you. Middle of the week, and I've got some good news here. Good news about the Middle East. Now, you may think this is crazy, but it's not. Uh, I came across a report from a former um, ambassador of Israel to the United Nations. His name is Dor Gold. He was a frequent guest on this program back, you know, during the days, the years following 9-11. And he had written a book, an outstanding book, called Hatred's Kingdom, How Saudi Arabia Supports the New Global Terrorism. Well, I just came across uh, an article that he penned in which he says things have changed unbelievably in Saudi Arabia. And I'm, we're going to go over some of those things that he says, because uh, as as miserable as things are in Israel right now, we shouldn't forget that there are still other nations developing, and in the case of Saudi Arabia, they were actually, it was a thought that they were drawing close to Israel and maybe moving towards, um, you know, even diplomatic recognition. Uh, and then this happened and Saudi Arabia did not come out and condemn Hamas, which was a big disappointment. But I'm going to talk, uh, let Dorgold explain himself to us. Also coming up, we'll take a look at what Mark Twain believed, a remarkable man, really one of the most characteristic of American writers. Um, He, in fact, had a lot to say about uh, Christian faith uh, and towards the end of his life, his views got more and more, uh, I would say, anti-Christian. But there's a strong story there that's worth looking at. Plus, how did he regard Catholics? Again, this is a ni- late 19th century America, early 20th century America. We're going to take a look at Hamas's strategy of human sacrifice. And then we're also going to pick up on a conversation with Tom Doran about uh, in the environment. You know, discussions about the environment follow a pretty predictable pattern. We agree we should protect the environment. We're not sure how to do it. Then competing narratives about the severity of the situation make it hard to decide what action is prudent. And anyone who questions the mainstream positions is accused of being an irresponsible science denier. None of this is conducive or helpful in forming actual policy. Tom Doran helping us uh, make sense of the environmental debate. But first, today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, October 25th. It's the Feast of St. Crispin and St. Crispian. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. The Synod on Synodality has addressed the members of the Catholic Church in a letter, inviting them to take an active role in the discernment and decision-making of the Church. The letter thanks the faithful for its prayers during the synod process and says many challenges and numerous questions remain. 
A synthesis report will be published October 28th to specify the points of agreement we have reached, highlight the open questions, and indicate how our work will proceed. Pope Francis reaffirmed the impossibility of women becoming priests or even modern church deacons in an interview for a book released this week in Italy. When asked why he is against the female priesthood, Francis said it is a theological program and the fact that the woman does not access ministerial life is not a deprivation because her place is much more important. He also said he does not share the view that women's ordination would bring more people to church, citing Lutheran churches that ordain women and still have low attendance. There's a new Speaker of the House after the chamber was without a leader for more than three weeks. The Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana has re- received 220 votes. And the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 209 votes. Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson received enough votes to win the speakership this afternoon following failed attempts from three of his fellow Republicans. Johnson was first elected to Congress in 2016 and sits on the House Judiciary Committee. He is replacing California Republican Kevin McCarthy, who was recently voted out of his position by a handful of conservatives and Democrats. This comes as Congress is facing a long list of pressing issues, including passing legislation to fund the government before mid-November and providing aid to Ukraine and Israel. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. There's some basic things about conflict in the Middle East that everybody should realize. Um, And that is that in 1948, the United Nations had a partition plan that had territory for the Jews and for Arabs. The Arabs rejected the plan. The Jews accepted the plan. The day after the Jews declared independence and uh, had legal title to that property, the five surrounding Arab nations declared war on Israel. Okay, so... Don't forget, this was a hostile situation from the beginning. None of the nations that declared war on uh, Israel accepted even Israel's right to exist as a nation-state. Okay, At that time, they expected the elimination of Israel as a nation-state. Now, things have changed over the years, and because we hear so much conflict, we might forget that some positive things happened in 1979. Uh, Anwar Sadat, Egypt's president, signed a peace treaty with Israel that had been negotiated at Camp David. Uh, he and Menachem Begin uh, worked this out with Jimmy Carter. And so that, you know, they became the uh, first of the Arab nations to show full recognition of the Jewish state. You had Jordan on October 26 of 1994. King Hussein of Jordan and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin established peace during a ceremony witnessed by Bill Clinton, U.S. president. It came a year after the Oslo Peace Accords between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And then on September 15th of 2020, uh, President Trump, together with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, signed agreements with Bahrain's foreign minister. Uh, So Morocco, on December 10th of 2020, with the help of the United States um, and Israel, uh, Morocco agreed to establish full diplomatic and trade relations with Israel. 
And Sudan was part of the Abraham Accords, although they haven't finalized the normalization treaty with Israel. So, you know, this is over a generation, uh, nations that were on record formally calling for the elimination of Israel as a nation state. Uh, We have a number of them now acknowledging that uh, Israel has a right to exist, and let's get on with the discussion. That's positive. Uh, It's slow, but it's positive. Something else happened I came across earlier today. Back after 9-11, we had a guest named Dor Gold, who was a relatively frequent guest. He was uh, a representative uh, ambassador to the United Nations. Israel sent him to the United Nations. He was well-established. He had his did his doctoral work uh, on Saudi Arabia and published a book called Hatred's Kingdom, How Saudi Arabia Supports the New Global Terrorism. And it was a, it was a great book. It was a lot of work, and he was a great guest. Well, I came across earlier today uh, a statement that Dorgold just made, and I'm thumbing through here trying to make sure I have it. Uh, and what, uh, yeah, here it is. This was issued in September of this year. He, um, said that we're celebrating once again the 9-11 attacks on the United States. And those of us who have been professionally involved in the study of the Middle East were shocked to learn at the time that the vast majority of the terrorists who flew hijacked aircraft into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon back then did not come from Lebanon or Libya or Syria, but from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which was had at that point never been associated with international terrorism. So across the world, many tried to understand the source of the rage that motivated the operation, and uh, he discovered that in Saudi Arabia there were huge multinational charities propagating a movement representing an extreme form of Islam known in the West by the name of its 18th century founder, Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Uh, and there were a number of these charities. Uh, fast forward now. Uh, he published his book, Hatred's Kingdom, became a New York Times bestseller. And uh, fast forward now to 2023, and what do we learn? That Dor Gold now says that the central thesis of his book in Hatred's Kingdom how Saudi Arabia supports the new global terrorism, is now wrong. And you say, what what are you talking about? How would you know this? Well, again, uh, he's able to monitor Saudi money. How much Saudi money is now going to Hamas? It appears that Saudi Arabia is not giving a dime to any of the terrorist organizations. Today, the main countries funding Hamas are the Islamic Republic of Iran and uh, Qatar, or Qatar, What about the propagation of extremist ideologies? Well, back in 2001, the Muslim World League, headquartered in Mecca, was spreading the ideology that supported this new wave of global terror. And its membership had refugees from Arab states, those who'd been part of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Yet today, the same Muslim World League has issued the Charter of Mecca. This was in 2019 based on interreligious tolerance rather than jihad. A year later, 
Its secretary general took a delegation to Auschwitz. We are clearly in a different world. He points to Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, as somebody making important reforms, reshaping key elements of Saudi Arabia. The religious police, for instance, up in the 2020 were harassing Saudi citizens. In 2020, MBS curbed their powers. He also established a new city called Niam near the Gulf of Aqaba that requires international cooperation. Uh, he goes on to make you know, many, many other statements of change in Saudi Arabia. And I think for all the n- negative news that we get, uh, especially immediately now with the Hamas attack, October 7th, it's important to keep in mind that there's still other activity going on in the Middle East. Um, Iranian armed forces are really creating great trouble. Um, the Western powers originally created NATO, you know, to bring together former enemies. And uh, today we have a collective challenge. We've got Iran and its proxies that are trying to reestablish Persian power in the framework of a new renewed empire there. And that would bring Iranian armed forces into most of Afghanistan as well as Iraq into large parts of Syria. So, again, to have Saudi Arabia there definitely opposed to Iran. And before this uh, Hamas attack, there was quite a bit of conversation, even smiles coming from uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and MBS, that uh, relations were warming between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Unfortunately, uh, Saudi Arabia did not condemn uh, Hamas, and uh, he, they went along with pretty much the, most of the other Arab nations. Two United Arab Emirates in Bahrain did condemn Hamas. But I do think, again, um, it's important to keep in mind that this is a very, um, uh, very it's not all about politics. It's about culture. And it's clear that uh, Saudi Arabia is making an important effort to change the culture there. They're extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, It's not in their best interest uh, to be working in a geopolitical environment in which disaster could come at any moment because of global terrorism. So, you know... You know, say all you want about what potential motives are here, but at the very least, what we know is they want look, business always wants a stable environment. And Saudi Arabia is doing great business. And so they want stability. And they are a point of stability for us. It used to be, <clears throat> maybe you don't remember this, but it used to be that Iran was the source of stability for us in the Middle East. Israel and Iran. I can remember President Carter toasting the Shah of Iran. Uh, and a year later, the Shah of Iran was basically run out of town. And then we had, of course, the hostage crisis in Iran. And we haven't, uh, we haven't gotten over that yet, really. Uh, should mention, too, that we've got uh, a call from Pope Francis. He's asking us and everyone who desires peace the world over to participate in a day of prayer, fasting, and penance 
coming up Friday, October 27th, so it's right around the corner. And uh, let's see, he actually is posted here. Let's see exactly what he said. Uh, it's always fun to read the exact words. Here it is. I have decided to declare Friday, 27 October, a day of fasting, penance, and prayer. Uh, I invite the various Christian confessions, members of other religious, and all who hold the cause of peace in the world at heart to participate. He went on, lay down weapons and heed the cries for peace from the poor, the people, and the innocent children. War solves no problems. Uh, It only sows death and destruction, increases hatred, multiplies revenge. War erases the future. It erases the future. And then he went on to again direct the faithful to take no side in the present conflict, but take the side of peace, and to do so with prayer and total dedication, and then called for prayer on October 27th, this Friday. He himself would preside over a holy hour at 6 p.m. from St. Peter's Square. So, uh, again, hearing from uh, Pope Francis, uh, you know, prayer, that is one of the things that we really do have to offer the world. And when there's big geopolitical problems like this, we, well, I anyways, am interested in the details. That's fine. But the details aren't worth much if you aren't, you might say, lubricating the situation with prayer. I'm Al Cresta. Stay with me. We've got more coming up. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. We Catholics have lots of ways to pray. Novenas, litanies, meditations, you name it, we've got it. With so many ways to pray, there's sure to be a way that fits your family. No matter how you pray, though, it's important to remember why we pray. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, prayer is, quote, a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God, close quote. When we sit down to pray as a family, we're not just checking off another chore on our to-do list. We're helping one another deepen our relationship with God and each other. If you're not sure where to begin, try this. Before meals and family gatherings, say, let's remember to take a moment to be in God's presence, and then take even 30 seconds to praise God, to thank Him, and to ask for His grace and blessing for your family. For more ideas about praying with your family, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family. 
To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows. And and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. (laughs) EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Tom Doran joins me once again. He's worked on hundreds of environmental and infrastructure projects. He was president of Tetra Tech MPS, also an adjunct professor of engineering at Lawrence Technological University and a member of the College of Fellows of the Engineering Society of Detroit. He's also author of the Tolkien-inspired Toward the Gleam. And um, it's good to have you back, by the way. We said we were going to get together Yes, again. yes, and good to be back, Al. Thank you. Discussions about the environment tend to follow a pattern. It's fairly easy to get people to agree that somehow we have a responsibility for the environment in some way. Uh, I think most people, or lay people anyways, don't quite know what to do about it. Does that mean I recycle? Yeah, okay. What else do I do? Um, and then once you start to talk about the larger political questions involved and the economic questions involved, you have competing narratives about the severity of the situation. You have those who kind of uh, see greater danger, those who minimize the danger, and people are making judgments all along the way. And then, of course, there's also, we shouldn't be naive, there's also uh, vested interests that come into play here. Uh, industries that may be uh, pinched if certain environmental uh, protocols are put in place. Um, you know, I I know in basically conservative circles, uh, there was great suspicion 
about, quote, the environmental movement. You know, it was, it was thought, uh, evangelicals thought it was, in, it was tinged with New Age thought, political conservatives thought it was uh, the product of liberal political interests. Talk to me about how you work through all this, and how do you make sense of these competing narratives and conflicts where what ends up happening is nothing. People get frozen. They don't know what to do, and they end up with opinions. They don't end up with action. Right, good. And and how I've approached it is I have looked back on my own experience for about 40 years or so. Yeah. And what I've concluded is that we don't have to make the stark choices that people suggest we have to make between being an environmentalist or not, yeah. being a good steward of the environment or not, uh, but rather uh, we look at things in context and we look at uh, make prudential judgment based on what we've experienced and what we've learned. Yeah. Yeah. So what I mean by that on a, in a practical level is uh, Pope Francis starts out with, with telling us that we need to be good stewards of creation. Yeah. Awesome responsibility, right? Yeah. At the yeah. top. It's, at right the top. There. it's right there in the, the, the early chapters of Genesis. It is. Yeah. And uh, However, we have people also that need to have jobs and put food on the table and provide for their families. Right. So we've got that balance. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, we're looking at some of today's threats to the environment, uh, which could include climate change sure. or pollutants. But we also look at the progress we've made, tremendous progress in America with air and water and habitats yeah. that I yeah. like to emphasize. So we've got that. Then we've got the sort of historical perspective that, for whatever reason, free societies have done a better job at cleaning up yeah. the environment than command and control society. Yeah, so right. far, that's been the history. Yep. And, in the next 50 years, we'll see, but that's been what we've learned, what we've seen. Last but not least was something Pope Francis talked about a lot, which is technology, right? Yeah. My own view is technology can be a good servant, and uh, I've seen that with cleaning water up, cleaning air, cleaning habitats, uh, but it's not the only, as Pope Francis said, it's not the only solution, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and technology has been used in bad ways as well. But as long as we make it a good servant, it can. So here we've got these things we're juggling. Yeah, yeah. Right? We're all ju- we're juggling all these things, and we're trying to say, okay, on this particular subject, where do I where do I come down? Yeah. So take so, take a subject like uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. What is established? Well, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a. First of all, I think uh, I'm not an expert yeah. now okay. uh, on climate change. I've I've done a lot more work with water and and habitats and air. However, uh, it's a very specialized, very specialized uh, s- series of sciences that relies heavily on data, models, mm-hmm. algorithms, yeah. and the like. And so uh, there are people who debate uh, 
the degree to which climate change is occurring and the extent to which humans yeah. are contributing to that. Right. And I think it's an honest debate, and I think it's, uh, although some would have us believe it isn't, but uh, either one side or the other, but uh, I, I think uh, it's such a complex system I yeah. mean, when we think about things. I mean, that the climate is affected by so many different things. Yeah. So yeah. I, think, I think it's right to be uh, concerned about it. And one thing we talked a little bit about last time was the idea that, okay, even if we concluded that it had a lower probability of being serious, mm-hmm. if the impact was devastating, then we might conclude that some remedial action is prudent. Yeah, right, 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 right. That right. kind of argument. Yeah. And I like that argument. Yeah. Um, you've seen efforts um, to ch- change. Um, you, you mentioned water and air, uh, where there's been great success. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have any... Is there any way of making analogies from the successes we've had in the field of uh, water pollution and air pollution uh, to the bigger issue of climate change. In other words, it seems like when we talk about water and air, there seem to be lots of things that we can do mm-hmm. pretty, pretty easily. I mean, it's, it's, theoretically, it's, it's something we can handle. Climate seems to be much more cosmic (laughs) it is it is much more cosmic and i think it is much more impacting on people however even with water and air and habitats uh, now we tend to look back on it as more of a straight line progress but it was very much fits and starts (laughs) having lived through some of that it very much fits and starts uh with those sorts of things as well Sometimes we we might have gone too far. We did you know things that were giving us incremental benefits for big dollars, right? Yeah. Other times we missed you know things. Yeah. So uh, I I think that that uh, to me that the the conversation about what's prudent, the the open scientific conversation, not shutting down uh, perspectives by learned people. Uh, as occurred, unfortunately, uh, during the pandemic as well. Yeah. Uh, but but letting that science, uh, you know, be uh, be brisk and be open and be uh, sometimes even contentious. Sure. Let us know. Like I said, sometimes these conversations are politicized, and people are accused of holding political motives and therefore not examining the data. In your experience working side by side with many men and women in technical fields, how many of them are driven politically? What percentage of them? Do you know? Is it a big percentage? A little percentage? Do you even talk about it? Wow, that's. Uh, I think. I think that's a. That's great. And my answer would be more so now than before. Okay. And the reason I say that is earlier in my career there were there have always been interest groups on one side or the other, okay. right? Okay. Um, but for the most part, the engineers and scientists were allowed to do their work. Mm-hmm. I think what's happened uh, more recently is that some of that um, politicization 
has filtered down, as we've seen, in, in more so into universities and yeah. businesses mm-hmm. and things like that. And people who otherwise would rather just do the engineering and science <laughs> are now being affected by that. Yeah. Right? I, so I, I think that is real. Okay. Um, however, I do think there are people out there, many, who are trying to do the very best they can to come up with uh, honest scientific conclusions. Sure, sure. Uh, were, were you surprised to see Pope Francis establish himself as kind of the, um, the Pope of the Environment? I mean, it, it was there. Pre- it was President John Paul II and Benedict, just not to such an overt degree. Did he? Did he surprise you? He did. Yeah. He did surprise me. The the degree to which uh, the, you know, the granular way in which he's gotten into uh, conversations about the environment uh, has surprised me somewhat because. I have, uh, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I've always seen that as a more uh, a prudential judgment yeah. type of area. Yeah, right. However, um, if the Pope were to be convinced that this can be catastrophic, which sure. it sounds like he is, mm-hmm. then it's understandable that he may take a more powerful sure. or more... Uh, perspective. We, we mentioned earlier that you had five considerations that you had yes, laid out. Yes, I, yes. We, I just realized we're almost out of time. Yeah. Uh, let's go. Let's hear some of them. Well, we, we I, I, I snuck them in. Okay, you got them in so there. I without, got them no, in there. Yeah. Without, so without, they were they were the the, the 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 stewardship, the human needs, the pollution threats, the climate change threats, uh, the free societies versus the command and control, and then last but not least. The role of technology, the role yeah. of technology, which a pope uh, really took on in his most recent letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he talks about the technological paradigm, uh, yeah. and and wants to, he he really wants to make sure that with our increasing appreciation, fascination, and use of technology, that we don't forget the human factor. Uh, I think that's so important to remember that we're talking about people. We are talking about people in hearts. I, I finished up my article for Catholic World Report by saying that even if we were to find a practical way to make fusion yeah. energy workable, that if human hearts aren't changed, then guess what? We're going to still have a lot of problems. <laughs> Tom, thanks so much. You're welcome. Great talking Good talking. Again. Great. Yeah. Again, Tom Doran. Uh, again, is also a novelist. Uh, we've had him on before talking about his uh, literary work, and we'll have to have him back to talk about that again. I'm Al Cresta. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Pro-life across America, the people. We need your help. 
Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. What is the meaning of the Hail Mary? There are multiple meanings, explains the Catholic Catechism. When we say Hail Mary or Rejoice Mary, we are repeating the greeting of the angel Gabriel to Mary at the Annunciation. The next phrase, full of grace, the Lord is with you, asserts that Mary is full of grace because the source of grace, the Lord, is with her. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, echoes Elizabeth when she greeted her young cousin who had come to assist her during her delivery of John the Baptist. Holy Mary, Mother of God, means that because Mary gives us Jesus, her son, the God-man, Mary is the Mother of God and our Mother. The final plea to Mary, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, acknowledges that we are sinners now, hoping that Mary can welcome us as our mother at the hour we die and lead us to her son Jesus in paradise. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Kidnappings of priests, seminarians, and other religious have increased in Nigeria, and many times their communities will pay a ransom to bring them home. Is this a good idea? That's our question in this Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know your thoughts. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. There's, there are many uh, reports uh, associated with the behavior of Hamas that uh, people ought to be suspicious of, but aren't. And uh, 
we talked about the hospitals, strike on the hospital. Uh, there's a good example where Hamas was able to actually uh, get public relations uh, benefits from what appears to be, again, uh, a, a, a bad uh, missile uh, shot by one of its allies from Palestinian Jihad. My guest, Doug Feith, is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He specializes in national security and defense. He served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the George W. Bush administration. He's authored War and Decision Inside the Pentagon at the Dawn of the War on Terrorism. And he's been writing uh, some great columns dealing with uh, Hamas's strategy. And, um, Doug, good to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Let's talk about... uh, you know, the you, you write that most of the coverage of the Hamas Israel war omits the reason for Hamas's attack. What was the reason for Hamas's attack? Hamas has, is a is an organization that was created in the late nineteen eighties and it published its purpose for being in a covenant and it says that its purpose for being is to destroy Israel, right? To destroy the Jewish people, and create a not only not only liberate Palestine, but create an Islamic caliphate. Yeah, yeah. And that is the strategic purpose of everything that Hamas does. <laughs> it's it's difficult to have a neighbor uh, that wants you dead and wants your. It doesn't even see your reason for existence. There's not much negotiation that can go on in a situation like that. Um, Hamas, it's, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, Hamas, it's not sensible to think about Hamas as a negotiating partner. Right, right. Um, so let's. They've they've one of the pretenses they laid out there was that Israel is plotting to destroy the Al Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount. Uh, what is that about? Well, the the goal, the kind of intermediate goal of Hamas on its way to destroying Israel is to outrage the the world in general and Arab Muslims in particular uh, against Israel. And one way to propagandize their people and and try to s- stir the Arabs in Israel and the and the Palestinians in the um, in the territories is to tell them that the that when they attack Israel, they're actually acting in self-defense because the Jews are plotting to destroy Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem. And when Hamas makes that argument, it's making an argument that has a, a long lineage. It goes back 100 years. And it was an argument that was invented by uh, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was the leader of the Palestinian Arabs in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And... He invented this argument, I mean, completely out of whole cloth, 
that uh, that it was the purpose of the Jews to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the other holy sites of the Muslims in Jerusalem. Now, the reason this is obviously nonsense is that Israel has had control for over 50 years of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and has has not destroyed any Muslim holy sites. On right. the contrary, guarantees free free prayer and and free exercise of the Muslim religion there. When Ariel Sharon made that walk to to uh, the Temple Mount, why was that so controversial? I, it, it, it's a, a good point that you make. I mean, it was extremely controversial because it played into yeah. this you know this venerable piece of dishonest propaganda going back to the 1920s. And uh, even though, as I said, it's obvious that it's not true now to people who who understand that Israel could have destroyed the mosque if it had chosen to, but on the contrary, you know, is preserving it. And uh, but the people who want to believe that the Jews are plotting against the Muslim holy places uh, have been promoting this idea for a century, and when the Israeli Prime Minister Sharon visited the Temple Mount, they announced, aha, this is, you know, proof <laughs> yeah. of proof of the plot. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Uh, you write that Hamas achieved a huge success on October 17th when an uncertain number of Palestinian civilians died in an explosion at Gaza's al uh, Al-Ahili uh, Hospital. Uh, so... I remember when this was first reported, it was reported that uh, Israel had, you know, bombed this hospital. Uh, and then later it was turned out, uh, it, it seems the best evidence is that the bomb came from uh, a Pal- Islamic uh, Palestinian jihad group that has about a 40% failure rate in missiles it shoots, and uh, this is one of their mistakes. But Hamas benefited from it, nonetheless. Yes, the it's 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 extremely strange uh, that a substantial loss of Palestinian civilians, such as happened when somewhere around fifty, I believe, is the current best estimate. Oh, okay. Uh, the the Palestinian the Hamas people had announced it was over 500. Yep. But the recent um, reports say that it was about a tenth of that. Um, but the idea that when you know 50 Palestinian civilians die, that this represents a victory for Hamas, should cause everybody to stop and say, "What a strange thing!" Yeah, I mean, why are dead Palestinians? a victory for Hamas? And the answer is that I believe that what what Hamas is aiming to do is to stimulate a major uprising by Arabs in Israel, the territories, and around the world. And so they have, for years, devised a strategy that of placing their military assets, rocket launchers, ammunition storage, communications gear, and their personnel in civilian locations like Mm -hmm. schools and mosques and apartment buildings and office buildings. 
Yeah. And this is to ensure that when they attack Israel, and Israel inevitably has to respond to defend Israel, sure. Palestinian civilians will die. Yeah. yeah. And it's important to understand that this is not a human shield strategy, as almost everybody calls it. That's wrong. The purpose of a human shield strategy is not to kill the shield. Okay. The purpose of a human shield strategy is to get your attacker to refrain from attacking you because the, the attacker wants to spare That's right. the shield. This is a different strategy. This is a strategy that says we know that Israel has to take action to defend itself, and we want to ensure that when Israel does that, it kills a lot of Palestinian civilians. Because we can then use those Palestinian civilian casualties to outrage the Arabs and possibly stimulate an uprising from them, and to outrage the world and damage Israel's standing. And, And what's important, I think, for everybody to think about is that this is actually something that is unique in human history. I don't believe there has ever been a party to a war in the whole history of the world whose strategy was to maximize civilian casualties on their own side. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. They're working to maximize uh, the harm, not minimize it. And uh, Right, and then the key, of course, is, is the purpose of maximizing the harm to their own civilians is to get Israel blamed for it. Right. Right. And the only reason they pursue this strategy is that it works. And well-intentioned, but in my view, misguided, not to say foolish people in the West, blame Israel. Right. And that rewards Hamas for this unbelievably inhumane strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That the world, the civilized world should be discouraging the strategy, not rewarding it. Yeah. And blaming Israel for casualties that were created on purpose by Hamas is rewarding Hamas for doing this terribly inhumane thing. So when Israeli military commanders on the 13th told Palestinians living in Gaza to evacuate to the south, okay, because north uh, is where uh, Hamas has its assets, its rockets and rifles and communications gear and, and personnel. Hamas leaders demanded that the people stay in place in the north. That's because, again, they wanted to maximize the deaths of their own people. Correct. It's just... It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's really stunning. It's really... I think that's why people have a hard cruel. time be. I think people don't... I think many people in the West... Can't, it just they can't imagine this kind of barbarism uh, in the modern age, and so uh, it's hard to hard to convince them. Uh, I, I was glad to You're see right. the president. It's a, failure, it's a failure of imagination, exactly because it's so horrible. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. Uh, I thought president uh, when he compared them to ISIS, I thought that helped. Uh, you know people better grasp uh, the barbarism of Hamas, um, because ISIS itself was a shock, yeah. I think he did did a service with that comparison. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I agree. 
Um, so, what what do you? How do you? How do we work uh, to correct this problem? I mean, you would think that Western news agencies would eventually, you know, see this. Uh, they they did revise their stories on the hospital's story. I, I would think they would finally get what's going on here. Yes, I think that people who are fair-minded, I, I think, are are persuadable yeah. and educable. But uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people approach the the conflict not in a fair-minded frame of mind, but in order to you know cheer on their you know a, a group that they decided that they're in favor of no matter what mm-hmm. and it's really it's really awful to see how especially in leading universities of the united states we have people who are supporting it, hamas yeah. even though hamas systematically uses rape yeah. and the murder of children yeah for its for its political purposes. And you have, you know, people on the faculties of Harvard and Columbia and other major universities saying that, uh, that their sympathy for the Palestinians leads them to understand the exasperation of people who then take actions of this kind. But I mean, there is no exasperation of any people that justifies decapitating babies. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of people around the world have suffered a lot. I mean, from, you know, the, the blacks who suffered slavery in America to the Jews who suffered the Holocaust, and those, they didn't go around doing the kinds of things that yeah. Hamas is doing. I, I couldn't agree more. Doug, thanks so much. Wonderful talking to you. Enjoy your columns, too. So uh, we'll continue to read them. Thank you. Thank you. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. We listen to all kinds of things, as the Pope says. The radio, the TV, we listen to our phones, all kinds of other messages. But are we silencing ourselves enough that we may listen for God. The other thing we need to do is continue to educate ourselves on the faith. Are we listening to Catholic programming on a regular basis? Are we attending really good, healthy, faith-filled conferences to learn more from those who may be scripture scholars or apologists or maybe just a good talk from a spiritual leader or maybe watching a good video of a wonderful priest such as a Father John Ricardo or a Bishop Barron or someone else. So continue to, as Father John Harden used to say, Educate, educate, educate yourself in the Catholic faith. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We get what we look for. St. Therese of Lisieux has an interesting insight on this. Once in a discussion over the possibility of avoiding purgatory, the future saint told another member of her community, Sister Maria Fabronia, that God was more father than judge. 
And in this discussion, debate, she finally took the liberty of saying to the other sister, if you look for the justice of God, you will get it. The soul will receive from God exactly what she desires. Are we full of wounds and anger and hurt, and do we want to inflict that on other people? Are we allowing God to heal us? If we receive his mercy, we have to show it to others. The Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. Let's be transformed by them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net and go to the Cresta Guest Archives, where you can find articles associated with the topics that we've been discussing. Coming up next hour, we take a look at what many people see as the archetypical American writer, Mark Twain. And uh, he's a brilliant stylist. He's had, his life is, is just remarkable, and his struggle with faith is itself worthy of a few hours of conversation. Stay with me. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. There are uh, some figures in American history that um, really sum up so much of America, one of them being uh, Mark Twain. Uh, he's considered the archetypical American writer. Uh, he was a man whose uh, struggle with uh, faith uh, went on through his life, uh, and he got, uh, as he aged and more misfortune came his way, he seemed to uh, become increasingly embittered. But we'll find out more about that uh, today. Also, his attitude towards Catholics uh, at the, uh, the turn of the century of America, uh, worth taking a look at. His, uh, his novels, um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, are read by, well, when I was growing up, everybody read them. I don't know if that's still the case, but we'll find out. My guest will be Dr. Joseph Cecilla. He's head of the English Language and Literature Department at Houston Michigan University. He teaches a variety of undergraduate and graduate courses there. And we're going to go over this uh, with him. He did his doctoral work uh, on the literature of Mark Twain. So uh, stay with us. I think you're going to really come away with a, a very enriched understanding of this most remarkable man. But first, let's get to the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, October 25th. It's the Feast of St. Crispin and St. Crispian. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. There's a new Speaker of the House after the Chamber was without a leader for more than three weeks. The Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana has re- received 220 votes. And the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 209 votes. 
Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson received enough votes to win the speakership this afternoon following failed attempts from three of his fellow Republicans. Johnson was first elected to Congress in 2016 and sits on the House Judiciary Committee. He is replacing California Republican Kevin McCarthy, who was recently voted out of his position by a handful of conservatives and Democrats. This comes as Congress is facing a long list of pressing issues, including passing legislation to fund the government before mid-November and providing aid to Ukraine and Israel. A former White House Chief of Staff is a step closer to becoming the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. By a 12-9 vote, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee advanced Jack Lew's nomination for an expected confirmation by the full Senate. In addition to Chief of Staff, Lew served as Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. The oldest dog ever has passed away. Bobby, who lived to be over 31 years old, died last week at an animal hospital in Portugal. He was officially recognized as the oldest dog ever in February, two weeks after a 23-year-old Chihuahua attempted to stake a claim at the title. That dog, named Spike, is now the oldest living dog. And on this day in rock and roll history in 1970, speaking at a U.S. radio conference, President Richard Nixon asked programmers to ban all songs containing drug references. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Few authors are more distinctly American than Mark Twain, and he was a complicated man. Uh, His views on politics, religion, and other issues are often misunderstood, even to this day. We're going to be talking Dr. Joseph Cecilla, who's head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University, where he teaches a variety of undergraduate and graduate courses in American literature and literary criticism. In 2002, he received Eastern Michigan University's highest honor, the Ronald W. Collins Distinguished Faculty Award for Teaching. His research focuses on American literature of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and he serves as assistant editor of the Mark Twain Annual. He's co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. Joe, it's good to see you again. It's good to see you. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, let's, first of all, let's take the basic thing. Uh, this will get us into the river, too. Why, why is, his name's Samuel Clemens. Why do we call him Mark Twain? Uh, so this is a point of uh, uh, argument within Twain studies. Uh, he claimed that he borrowed it from a, uh, another steamboat pilot who also happened to write. Uh, when that person uh, passed in, I think, 1862 or something like that, Twain is out in Nevada at this time, uh, he started to sign his uh, work as Mark Twain. And uh, the, the, the explanation that most people uh, give for this is that uh, Mark Twain is a steamboatsman call yeah. for two fathoms of water. And you need two fathoms, 12 feet of water for uh, a steamboat to navigate a river. And so when you're moving into safe water, you, you hear steamboatmen uh, uh, cry, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, okay. Uh, but it works the other way, too. If you're getting into the shallows uh, and you hear Mark Twain, uh, it's, it's dangerous. Okay. And so it works both ways. But um, a biography uh, published uh, in the last year or two uh, makes the argument that uh, it actually comes from uh, his bar days out in Nevada. Uh, you would go into a, a, a bar and he would order a double. And um, you, he would buy it on credit, and uh, 
as he was leaving, he would uh, tell the bartender to Mark Twain, you know, two <laughs> strokes of the chalk. Um, so uh, I find that I, I, I always dismiss the uh, the bar uh, explanation because it uh, it seems so um, natural that the the steamboat one would make sense, but. Uh, but I'm, I'm persuaded that it's probably the bar and that he uh, he whitewashed the source as he um, became more and more <laughs> respectable. More, yeah, right, right. Uh, let's talk about his upbringing. Um, okay. What kind of uh, family? Uh, he was born, he was the sixth of seven kids born uh, in the Missouri frontier, uh, Florida, Missouri, which is about 30, 40 miles off the river. Um, his father was a lawyer, a judge, um, and a tireless uh, sort of speculator. Um, always, uh, always chased money in ways that uh, Twain himself uh, and his and his oldest brother would over the course of their career. Uh, when he was about nine, uh, ten years old, uh, his father moved the family to Hannibal, which is right on the river, uh, set up a shop, um, but was never quite the success that he had hoped for himself, mm -hmm. uh, Twain's father. Um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, lived on the American frontier. His mom? His mom, uh, just a, a typical uh, frontier housewife, mm -hmm. uh, taking care of seven kids. Were they active churchgoers? Or they Christians? were. Okay. Yeah, uh, the father was something of a skeptic. Okay. Um, there were two Presbyterian congregations in Hannibal. Uh, the mother belonged to the more conservative, the more strict. Okay. And so that was his catechism. Uh, uh, you see this a little bit in uh, Tom Sawyer, for example, going to uh, church on Sunday, and that was that was his um, that was his introduction to Christianity. In when he um, when does he leave the family? So the the dad dies um, when he is uh, twelve or thirteen. And so at this point, he's, uh, he's taken out of school. Uh, he goes to work for his oldest brother, who's uh, about 10 years older than him. Okay. And uh, his brother runs a newspaper. And so Twain's, uh, Twain's job is to set type. Uh, and he's, a, he's just the, uh, the all-around handy person in the, uh, in the newspaper office. Uh, he eventually leaves uh, Missouri and uh, travels through New York and Washington D.C. as a teenager, uh, as a as an itinerant um, newspaper uh, worker. How's he? When does the urge to write emerge with him? Almost immediately, he's uh, he's writing as a. 14 or 15 year old okay. little news clips. Uh, they're always almost always hoaxes. <laughs> uh, and uh, he gets his older brother in trouble uh, when uh, his his name is Orion. When Orion leaves the uh, newspaper um, for a bit of time in Twain's, uh, Sam Clemens was his real name, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Sam's uh, care, um, he wrote some things that got some people really, really mad. Oh. So it's he's, he's doing it almost from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, when does he... Uh he, he writes about life on the river. How does he get involved there? So he um, he had plans uh, to travel to South uh, America in the late 1850s. So he's born 1835. Uh, so in the years leading up to the American Civil War, um, he decides he's going to go chase a, a dream in South America. Okay. Uh, 
while he's traveling from the Midwest down to St. Louis, um, he does this on a steamboat and actually falls in love with the, the river. And he is able to convince uh, a pilot on the river to take him in as an apprentice. Yeah. And uh, he learns the river under this individual. His name is Horace Bixby. <laughs> and he spends uh, a good, good bit of time learning the river. Uh, he, he describes, so uh, learning the river was just not getting from one city to the next. Wow. The, the Mississippi River, before the Army uh, engineers went down and put in the levees, was always shifting. And so there were channels, and the channels would shift. Oh. And um, it's like navigating a hallway uh, in the middle of the night uh, with uh, with the lights off, is okay. the way that he would describe yeah. it. And so most of us can do that, and he, he learned to do that. Uh, the problem is when someone leaves a basket of clothes in the hallway, uh, yeah. or a table, you move a table uh, that you forgot about, uh, that causes real problems. Yeah. Yeah. So he's um, he, uh, he becomes a steamboat pilot. Uh, it is a prestigious occupation in the mm-hmm. mid-19th century, makes a lot of money. I think the analogy would be like an airline pilot these oh, days, okay. right? Got to travel quite a bit. Then the Civil War came along and shut down all steamboat traffic on the river. And uh, his his dream uh, of, of the career as a steamboat pilot came to an end. What does he do uh, in the war? Um, so uh, Missouri is a border state. Um, it, uh, it allowed slavery, but it never f- uh, fully or formally... Uh, came in on the side of the Confederacy. Okay. Uh, so uh, folks uh, organized, young men organized uh, militias, uh, either for the Confederacy or the uh, the Union. He and a bunch of friends uh, organized uh, a, a little militia for the Confederacy. And they went out with very romantic ideas about war. Yeah. Uh, and about two weeks in, someone shot at them, and they all scattered. <laughs> Uh, his his older brother Orion again uh, is um, is uh, his newspaper was uh, supported the Lincoln campaign. Okay, and so as a result, when Lincoln was uh, elected, uh, his brother was uh, offered a, a job out in the Nevada Territory to serve under the uh, uh, the territory secretary. Okay. And so Twain followed his uh, brother out west in 1861. Is that where his writing career begins? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So he um, very quickly figures out that there's not much to do uh, with his brother in Nevada. Uh, he tries um, uh, mining just a little bit. Uh, this is the uh, the big silver load of the uh, mid-19th okay. century. Uh, doesn't uh, experience much success with that. Um, but he uh, does... Uh, he does experience success uh, with writing, and he uh, joined the staff of uh, the Territorial Enterprise. Um, newspaper. Uh, yeah, newspaper. Yeah. And it, uh, it had a staff of really remarkable men, men who were principled, men who um, could write, uh, men who were really funny, um, and men who were committed to the idea of justice. And this shaped him wow. uh, as, a, as a young thinker, a young uh, writer. Yeah. So he, he um, I mean, he, because of his humor, sometimes you'd think that maybe he doesn't, he isn't committed uh, to a, uh, a life of virtue like that. Yeah. Um, but not so. No, he, uh, at, at, at bottom, uh, Twain, uh, one of his um, obsessions is, is justice. Yeah. And you see that begin to 
inform the way that he deals with race, for example, uh, later in his career. Success comes to him how old? Well, uh, success almost immediately as a writer. Uh, he's, um, he's courted by some San Francisco newspapers. Um, he goes out to San Francisco and begins writing at, uh, at, at, at these places. Um, and he, uh, he, he convinces the editors to send him out to write uh, travel letters uh, from uh, what are called at the time the Sandwich Islands. <laughs> And it's what we call Hawaii today. Yeah. And so he got his boss to uh, send him to Hawaii uh, to, <laughs> to do work. And um, these were so popular that he came back. He was uh, courted by a New York newspaper. And so he traveled to New York after that. And uh, he talked those editors into sending him on uh, what turns out to be really the first cruise Hmm. Um, in American history, it's uh, it's put together by um, uh, Thomas Beecher and uh, some really pious. Uh, so is that of the famous Beecher family? Oh yeah, Lyman Beecher and Harriet yeah. Beecher Stowe. Those people. Uh, yeah, no, Twain okay. was Twain knew these these folks very well. <laughs> Um, so it was like a, a version of the uh, the Good News Cruise, and uh, he he got uh, the editors to pay his passage. He traveled uh, the Mediterranean, visited the Holy Land, wrote letters back to the newspaper. When he got back, he collected those uh, letters into his first book, a travel book called Innocence Abroad. Okay, and it was an overnight success. Wow. Um, where are women? In these years, uh, uh, you're talking about just generally speaking yeah. in in American culture. No, it, I'm sorry, with him. Oh, uh, I mean, he's a, a young man. Yeah, yeah, traveling yeah. around. Well, he um, he ran from some of the uh, reputation uh, that he had established out west. Okay. Um, these were these were frontier towns, and uh, they were rough. And yeah. our depictions of them in, in in movies, for example, are pretty spot on. <laughs> Um, but while he was on this cruise, he met a young man uh, from Elmira, New York, um, uh, Charlie Langdon. And uh, Charlie had a charm with a, with a photograph in it, a very small charm. And it was a, a photograph of his sister. And uh, Twain uh, recounts that he fell in love with the picture immediately. Wow. <laughs> and he spent uh, the next uh, set of uh, months uh, trying to convince, once they returned, trying to convince Charlie to invite him to Elmira, New York, which is in upstate. And uh, he would spend the next uh, year or two trying to convince the parents uh, uh, to, to let him have access to the daughter. Uh, hold it there. We'll come back okay. and pick up conversation. Uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Joseph Cecilia. Uh, taking us on a tour of the life of Mark Twain. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. The prayer of the hour of Jesus is an extraordinary prayer, states the Catholic Catechism. It is the longest prayer recorded in the Gospels that Jesus offers to his Father. He prays it as he is facing the hour of his passion. The Catechism claims the prayer embraces the whole economy of creation and salvation, as well as Jesus' death and resurrection. It always remains his own prayer, just as his Passover, once for all, remains always present in the liturgy of his church. 
In this Paschal and sacrificial prayer, also known as Jesus' priestly prayer, everything is concisely reviewed and summarized in Christ. God and the world, the Word and the flesh, eternal life and time, the love that hands itself over, and the sin that betrays it. Jesus fulfilled the work of the Father completely. His prayer, like his sacrifice, extends until the end of time. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Dr. Ray Garendi. When I've had enough. I ask parents, when do you decide to discipline? One of the most common answers is, when I've had enough. If discipline is designed to teach, then we need to discipline before we've had enough. We need to discipline because the behavior's wrong, not because emotionally it's pushed us to our edge. Besides, when you get to when you've had enough, you're much more likely to yell and scream and say things that you have to go to confession for. So, the suggestion is, discipline out of principle, not emotion. Principle means because it needs discipline, and I'm going to do it when I'm calm. Emotion means I'm going to be moved to do it just because I'm mad. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic healthcare alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Joseph Cecilla, head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University and co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. We've been going over uh, his life, and uh, he sees the picture of 
Charlie Langdon's sister. Livy. Uh, uh, Olivia is her her name. Uh, he called her Livy uh, her, her, throughout his life. Um, so he spends some time trying to just talk Charlie into inviting him to meet the family and ultimately meet Livy. Uh, he's, he does that. He, he uh, visits the home, uh, but the parents uh, know something about his reputation. Okay. Uh, and they want nothing to do with him. But Twain is relentless. And he, um, he comes back, and he comes back again. And um, the father uh, finally says, okay, so uh, you, you need to help me uh, with uh, Livy's mom. Uh, get me some letters of recommendation. Okay. And so he writes back west to some of the folks that he knew in Nevada. And um, he returns to the house, and the father has a stack of letters. Uh, and uh, he asks Twain... Uh, do you know what's in these letters? <laughs> and whether his uh, his references were um, playing jokes on him or whether they were um, maybe getting some revenge uh, on, on Twain uh, for the way that they were treated by him out uh-huh. west, the, uh, the, the letters were, were scandalous. Oh, gosh. And uh, the, the father looks at him and says, apparently you don't have any friends. Uh, <laughs> But I'll be your friend. And he advocated for Twain uh, within the family after that. And eventually they were married. Uh, That's just... (laughs) And he he remains utterly faithful to her. I mean, you know, I I don't know of another love story in American literature um, that is uh, more touching than this one. He was deeply dedicated uh, and devoted to, uh, to Libby. Yeah. No question. No question. Um, they they marry. Uh, do they stay in Elmira? I mean, I know they go to Hartford. Yeah. So there's a there's a little stint in Buffalo. The father okay. um, and and again, Livy's family is incredibly wealthy. the The father is a, a timber and coal baron, and so uh, he sets up uh, on the day of the wedding. Um, they uh, they send him off to Buffalo, and uh, the father had purchased a, a big home for them, mm. and set him up with a share in a Buffalo newspaper. And so Twain uh, was living a, a rather conventional life as a as a newspaperman, um, writing for the newspaper, editing, and then um, everything started to go sideways for him. So we're talking. This is probably 1869, 1870. Okay. Um, the father, uh, in the spring of 1870, uh, is diagnosed with stomach cancer. Oh. Um, Livy is pregnant with their first child. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, father is declining rapidly, so uh, Twain and his uh, wife go back to Elmira. She cares for her father. Uh, that August, he dies, and Livy... Uh, experiences, you know, the equivalent of a nervous breakdown. She's pregnant. A, a friend uh, comes to care for Livy. Now they're back in Buffalo. And um, a childhood friend, she contracts typhoid and dies uh, within three or four weeks of, of arriving in Buffalo in Twain's bedroom uh, where oh. she's staying. And then uh, oh. then uh, the uh, First, Does he blame himself for that? Oh, he he starts to. Yeah, yeah. he's he's got an uh, incredible capacity for blaming himself for things that were out of control. Yeah. Um, his is their firstborn son is born prematurely. 
uh, not expected to live that uh, fall. Um, and by the time they, so this is November of 1870, uh, by, um, by February of 71, um, he's had it and he's got to get out of town. Uh, and so he, he moves the family from Buffalo back to Elmira. And at this point, he has already put his eye on Hartford. Okay. Um, and uh, that's eventually the destination they, they land. Hartford had a reputation as a, a, a great city at that time? Yeah, so there were, um, so it was one of the first planned communities in American okay. um, society. Um, there were wealthy people living there. Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, turned out to eventually to be Mark Twain's uh, next door neighbor. <laughs> Uh, and so um, it's, you know, Hartford at the time is halfway, well, it still is, halfway between Boston and New York. It's mm-hmm. a it's a day's journey from both mm-hmm. going in opposite directions. And so Hartford was kind of a, a layover if you're traveling from New York to Boston or Boston to New York. Mm-hmm. So it had that advantage. Um, when, when is, is, is there, he's successful as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's published Citizens Abroad. Yep. When does he publish Adventures of uh, Tom Sawyer? It's a good question. Um, so this is something I'm working on right now. Um, so he publishes uh, Innocents Abroad in 1869. Uh, the next book is also a travel book. Travel books are widely popular in the 19th century, sort of like watching the Travel Channel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you can, you can tour vicariously through them. Um, so, uh, Roughing It is a travel book of his adventures out west. That's 1871. He writes a couple of small things. And then in 1876, he publishes Tom Sawyer. Okay. Does, is that like an explosion of success? No. You Not know, really. It's, okay. it's funny. You know, the, um, even he uh, didn't think that uh, books like Tom Sawyer or Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in his own lifetime were his best work. Um the public loved the uh, the travel books, and really, long into the 20th century, Mark Twain was remembered for his travel writing. Really? It's, yeah, it's really not in the 1950s <laughs> that Huckleberry Finn emerges yeah. as the great American novel. Yeah, I, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, that's, that, it was standard reading when I was growing up as a kid yeah. in, in the 50s and 60s. Um, where is he with his, well, what kind of faith? Is he exhibiting at this time? Sure. So um, he's he's raised in a, a, a what we would call frontier Calvinism, uh, a, a congregate, a Presbyterian congregation mm-hmm. in Hannibal, um, and it's um, it's pretty stern. Yeah. Um, he uh, he leaves it behind, uh, so he claims uh, as as early as his uh, late teens, early twenties. He's reading Tom Paine. Yeah. Uh, lots of Americans are. Yeah. And so he would have self-described as a deist, probably okay. in that period where he's out in um, out in Nevada. He meets uh, Livy and her family. They are committed um, New England evangelicals, okay. um, liberal, um, uh, socially active. Um, the the father was um, friends with uh, Frederick Douglass, for example. Okay. The house was a stop yeah. on the Underground Railroad. Evangelicals were liberal back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah very. Yeah. yeah. Uh, politically and, and socially. Um, and, and because of that, because of his, um, because of Livy's training or, or Livy's um, faith, 
he I I I think he gave it a good effort. Yeah. Um, to to come back to Christianity. Yeah. He could never quite do it, though. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, he, he um, William Dean Howells, a friend, uh, also a, a novelist from the late 19th century, a, a, a really influential figure in American art in the late 19th century, um, described uh, the heroic lies um, that he would um, he would assent to in in. Um, for his wife's sake. Mm. Eventually, uh, Livy um, became skeptical of Christianity, too. And uh, so by the, um, by the time he's writing Tom Sawyer, um, he's, he's, he claims to have left Christianity okay. behind. All right. But it's the argument that, uh, that my, my co-author and I make that, um, so uh, he, he's indoctrinated in, 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 in frontier Calvinism, and it becomes, you know, our, our friend Father John Ricardo likes to use the analogy of lenses. Yeah. Um, they're the lenses that he sees reality through, human nature, uh, the way that the cosmos works. Uh, he, he tries on other lenses, but um, deep down, um, he never leaves it behind. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, did, when he uh, – so when six – so when does – when was he – when does he – he has that – we talked earlier. Everything he touches turns to gold for yeah. a period. When is that period? So he publishes Tom Sawyer, eighteen seventy six. Um, by this time, he's um, he's building a home in um, in Hartford. Yeah. Uh, it's still there. If I, I encourage anyone who's yeah. traveling through the area to stop, it's it's Smithsonian quality um, uh, in in its uh, presentation. Um, it's about this time uh, that uh, Livy inherits um, the rest of her fortune from her family. Uh, by 1880, um, they're back in Hartford. They do some traveling in Europe um, in the late 1870s. And he's starting to self-publish, and he's starting to uh, dabble in business mm -hmm. uh, investments, and uh, everything he's touching is turning to gold. Yeah. Um, estimates are that uh, in uh, 19 or 1880, for example, um, he he brought in you know close to six million dollars in today's in today's wow. money uh, wow. in income alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we we now talk about uh, Huckleberry Finn. As this great step forward in race relations, yeah, is that true? I think so. Okay, uh, you uh, and tell us why. I mean, yeah, um, so when he's writing this book, um, he's you know so he he's writing Huckleberry Finn on the heels of the publication of Tom Sawyer, so it's it's into his mind a sequel to Tom Sawyer. Uh, he discovers the character of Huckleberry Finn halfway through writing Tom Sawyer, and he realizes that this is his character. Okay, and so he decides he's going to tell Huckleberry Finn in the first person, put it in Huck's voice. Okay, Tom Sawyer was told in the third person. Um, was that common to have? Uh, yeah, you could. Re Lots of people wrote in in the first okay. person. Uh, Huckleberry Finn was the first novel to be written in the first person completely in dialect though okay the american okay. voice and so that's that's part of its breakthrough um 
The other thing uh, that I think is important is, um, so the book is written in the 1880s. It's set in the 1840s. It purports um, to be about slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, slavery is a dead issue in 1880. By 1880. Yeah. Hold, hold Daryl. Come sure. back and pick, pick up on that because uh, the characterization of uh, Jim is something that's, again, came, became controversial, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. We're talking about uh, Mark Twain, my guest, Dr. Joseph Cecilla from Eastern Michigan University. Uh, again, a complicated man, uh, fascinating story. I'm Al Cresta. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band, and I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child, but I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Did you know that the church calls your family to be holy? It's true. Now, don't freak out. The church isn't holy because the people in it are anywhere near perfect. It's holy only because Jesus is holy. 
and because the Holy Spirit lives and works in it. And the same thing is true about your domestic church. Our families don't need to be perfect. We only need to open ourselves to God's grace so that we can share His love, healing, and forgiveness with each other and with the people we meet every day out in the world. Remember, holiness isn't restricted to grand gestures. It's as simple as doing ordinary, everyday things in a way that shows God's love. For more tips on living a holier life as a family, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Joseph Cecilla, head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University and co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. Huckleberry Finn um, is written uh, at the time Reconstruction is dead. Mm-hmm. The Klan is coming alive. Yeah. And it's set in 1840 when slavery was still an institution. But by 1880, you pointed out that that's a dead issue. The Civil War settled it. Yeah, yeah. So why would he spend so much time developing the character of Jim and Huck Finn's response, relationship. Yeah. With, I mean, that's the key to the Huck Finn the relationship yeah. between the two. Yeah. Um, the, the question of slavery was settled, uh, but racism was not. Gotcha. And in fact, it uh, historians uh, argue regularly that what African Americans experienced under Jim Crow, which, you know, is ushered in late 1870s, early 1880s, and really um, uh, defines American culture for the next hundred years. Um, what African Americans experience under Jim Crow is, um, in many ways, worse than what they experienced under slavery. At least under slavery, um, a, a black had the protection of his owner. Yeah. Um, under Jim Crow, he was vulnerable. Vulnerable. Every to everybody. It's everybody. Yeah. 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 So, what's the relationship then between Huck and? The runaway slave. Yeah. So um, Huck is uh, one of those rare characters in Twain um, who I, I think he would uh, he would say that he um, he rooted for, he admired. Um, he he loved Huck's desire um, for, for something more, for freedom, um, for something more spiritually and socially fulfilling. Um, Twain didn't believe that those things were possible. Um, but he wanted to believe in them and cheered on characters who shared that sentiment. Yeah. Um, he grows to appreciate Jim as a human being. Um, that is all turned upside down uh, by the end of the novel with um, Tom Sawyer's reappearance, who is not a good character, someone Twain did not like. <laughs> and um, over the course of his career, he went back to Tom Sawyer time and again. Tom Sawyer, the character, represents... Um, everything um, that he despised about human nature. Conniving. Hypocritical. um, Cruel. um, All those things. The the, the question of, uh, at one point in Huckleberry Finn, he has to decide um, whether he's going to turn 
Jim back to his owner or inform the owner or something. Yeah, so so they they've been they've been kidnapped by uh, a couple of uh um you know uh, grifters on the river. Gotcha. And uh he's he's been trained his entire life that slavery um was good and that helping someone escape that like he is with Jim is um is sinful mm-hmm. and so he makes the decision at one point at late in the novel to go to hell um uh, and help jim yeah and it's a uh, it's a moment um that that seems climactic in the book but we have 10 more chapters to go through <laughs> and everything gets undone um because again twain didn't believe that that kind of progress was possible with human nature Human nature was fixed, and he learned that from Calvinism. Wow, that, yeah. Uh, l- let's let's pick him up, um, and his business uh, goes south. He he he's no longer everything he turns touches now becomes miserable. Yeah, he's you know he's he he's, he's so interesting. So the conventional view of Twain is that he was a horrible businessman. Yeah. Um, blew his fortune right. uh, on bad business deals uh, because he just had no acumen for it. Um, but if you look at his, um, you look at some of the facts. I mean, he he sold his books uh, from the beginning um, by subscription rather than in a bookstore, and it was not um, the uh, cultivated way to sell books, mm-hmm. but it made him a lot of money, and yeah. it was a smart business decision. He um, he he. Uh, set up his own publishing firm and convinced Ulysses S. Grant to write yeah, a memoir. That's right. That's right. And he uh, he was able to turn over to Grant's widow because Grant died just, he, he was um, dying of throat cancer as he was writing his memoir in the mid-1880s. He was able to turn over to uh, Grant's family the, large, the single largest um, royalty check in American publishing history, something on the order of two or three million dollars in today's money. <laughs> Um, and it sold. Everyone wanted a copy of this book, yeah. uh, and that was his idea—a presidential memoir, which are which is fairly common these days. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what happened to Twain is that um, uh, a perfect storm of economic um, uh, crisis and um, bad decision making with books, um, which books to publish. So, 1893 is when he gets wiped out. Um, he was, the one time I, I heard you published uh, the, uh, uh, the biography of uh, Leo the Thirteenth. Yeah, no, he, and he did. He, he did. Yeah, okay. no. So right after he publishes uh, Grant's memoir, he figures that there are so many Catholics on the globe that this is a surefire bestseller. Every Catholic is going to want one. <laughs> And so he secured the rights to Pope Leo's biography, and it didn't lose money, but it didn't come close to yeah, what he expected yeah. it to sell. His attitude towards Catholics? Uh, conventional 19th century, for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, he writes a lot of books set in uh, medieval times, so Catholicism is his um, register for religious, organized religion. Mm-hmm. Um, Joan of Arc is still read. Yeah, Joan, and Joan, is, Joan is different. Um, you know... Uh, and he eventually came to um, admire Catholicism. Uh, some uh, a, a group of nuns took care of uh, his youngest daughter, um, who was suffering from epilepsy, okay. and said at one point uh, late in life that if he were ever to join a congregation again, it would be a, a Catholic congregation. Wow. 
But Joan of Arc is so interesting, um, and there are all kinds of reasons why he writes that book. Uh, you know, it comes it seems to come out of nowhere. But remember, the the manuscripts for her trial were discovered in the middle of the nineteenth century, okay. and um, everyone was writing about Joan. And his daughters were also, um, when he starts this book in the early eighteen nineties, also turning from teenagers into young women. And a lot of what goes into Joan is this idealization of virtue, uh, a yeah. virtuous woman. And um, it's informed by what's happening in his own family. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so his business, um, he wasn't as bad a businessman as, as is often made out. But he does go bankrupt at some point. He does point. go bankrupt. So what happens is something the equivalent of the housing crisis we experienced, the Great Recession, yeah. you know, 06, 08. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I knew lots of people who were responsible, uh, lost their homes, yeah. lost their businesses, yeah. had to move. And um, that's, that's what took him out. Um, we call it the Panic of 1893. Um, yeah, uh, the, it, if... If the Great Depression had not occurred in the 1920s and 30s, this is the economic disaster that the country would have remembered. Okay. Um, the Wizard of Oz is, uh, you know, the film that oftentimes is read as a, a commentary on the Great Depression. Um, strangely enough, the book that that was adapted from was written in the 1890s about the Panic of 1893. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't. He declares bankruptcy, but he ends up being persuaded to pay back his creditors, which wasn't necessary. He was already well known. Um, tell me about his decision. Yeah. So, uh, 1893 goes um, bankrupt. Uh, it's horribly embarrassing um, uh, to him, to his wife. Uh, at this point, he has uh, befriended uh, Henry Rogers, the number two guy at Standard Oil. Okay. And uh, uh, Rogers takes over his finances. Um, and together, uh, Rogers and Livy, though the settlement for the bankruptcy only required him to pay, I think, 10 cents on the dollar to his creditors, uh, both Livy and Rogers convinced him to pay dollar for dollar. And um, he agreed. And uh, the the way he paid this off is to, is to go on a, a worldwide lecture tour, which he despised at that time. Oh, he yeah he anyone who travels uh, in their in their youth you know in their twenties uh, grows weary of it the hotels and the the, yeah. the trains. So he spends a year on the road, literally uh, circling the globe, and he uh, he. Uh, Earns his uh, earns the the fortune back, pays all of his creditors dollar for dollar, and this is really the point at which um, the world begins to uh, lionize Mark Twain. He is already the most conspicuous person on the planet, um, but the the tragedies that he experienced in in that ten year period, the eighteen nineties, and the fact that he committed to paying back his creditors just wins everyone's or uh, admiration. Is he the is he the archetypical American uh, writer? Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Uh, yeah, Faulkner calls him all of our grandfather. Hemingway, uh, famously in the nineteen thirties, refers to Huckleberry Finn as um, the place where all uh, modern American literature comes from. Okay, so it is it is a, a watershed book then oh, for American literature. Yeah, no question. What what was the controversy? I I don't know if it's still going on, but I can I remember fifteen twenty years ago, there were people trying to say Huckleberry Finn was inappropriate for uh, element, 
high school students or something like that because of its treatment of uh, slavery uh, and its treatment of Jim. What was that about? Yeah, so it actually had more to do with the use of uh, what we refer to as the N-word. Oh, okay. All and right. so um, the, the, the gentleman, or the person who put that book together was actually my dissertation director. <laughs> so I, I know the story pretty, uh, pretty well. Um, his name is Alan Gribben. He's at Auburn University in Alabama. And uh, what he was experiencing on a regular basis was uh, a situation where schools could not assign Huckleberry Finn to their students because of the N-word. And so he put together an edition and replaced the N-word with, um, with slave. And um, his point, he's very clear in the introduction to this book, he does not recommend this as a substitute for the, um, the original, but in places where the book is not being used because of it, he argues that it is better to get some twain than no twain at all. He mm-hmm. was, he was um, really taken to task in the media. Ironically enough, you know, the people like in 60 Minutes and on the late night shows who criticized him... Um, wouldn't say the word themselves. They, you know, they used you know the euphemism N word right, themselves. Right. Um, so I think he made his point. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I didn't realize it revolved around that. Yeah. Um, his Livy dies, um, and he loses his children. Yeah. He is a man of extraordinary Everest style success. At the end of his life, what's he like? Lonely. Um, he increasing so Livy dies in nineteen oh four. Twain lives uh, another five or six years after they dies nineteen ten. Mm-hmm. Um, he's survived by just one of his children, Clara, um, who um, coincidentally enough uh, marries a, a composer named Asip Gabrilowicz, who um, who takes the first. Um, uh, appointment uh, as director of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> oh, really? And, uh, yeah, he and Clara moved to Detroit uh, after Twain's death. Um, but he dies a lonely man. Yeah. And uh, he's never able to... He never has the grace of faith. Never came back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, thanks. Al, thanks. It's Good been a pleasure. Good talk for hours. This is yeah. great stuff. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Dr. Joseph Cecilla, head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University, and co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children had spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell and somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. 
When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Kidnappings of priests, seminarians, and other religious have increased in Nigeria, and many times their communities will pay a ransom to bring them home. Is this a good idea? That's our question in this Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know your thoughts. Good afternoon. Thank you for being with me. I'm Al Crest, the Catholic Answers Live coming up right now, giving you the information you need to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Remember, all of our conversations on Crest in the Afternoon have follow-up uh, information available for you in the Crest Guest Archives. Go to AveMariaRadio.net. That, again, is AveMariaRadio.net. And uh, if you go to the archives there, you'll find the supplementary material for the interviews and sometimes contact information. Uh, for our guests as well. Uh, books that we mentioned on the program are all available uh, in the online bookstore there again at AveMariaRadio.net. And uh, thanks for being with me today. Let me remind you, Pope Francis calling for a day of prayer for uh, peace in the Middle East. Uh, that's Friday. You want to keep that in mind. It's a day of prayer and fasting. And um, I think when the Holy Father gives us a challenge like that, uh, it's worthwhile, especially if we actually do believe in prayer. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.